Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that, Lord God, today it would take root in our hearts. And Lord, that by your spirit, you would cause it to grow and to bear fruit in our lives. I pray, Lord God, that you'd help me today to not get in the way of your word, but to preach it rightly. And that, Lord God, this church would be blessed as a result of hearing what you were teaching in this parable. Amen. Chapter 12 of Mark is a continuation of a conversation that was happening in chapter 11. It's been a while since we've been in Mark's gospel. But if you remember last time around, there was a dispute that was taking place between Jesus and the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin are the elite. They're the ruling class of religious scholars in Israel. And Jesus was debating with them. Do you remember that they were talking about the baptism of John? Where did the baptism of John come from? Was it from man or was it from God? And Jesus caught them, didn't he, with that question. And now Jesus turns and begins, the the scripture says, to speak to them in parables. He spoke to them in parables. And it's been said that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And Jesus told in the Bible around 40 different parables, around 40 of them. But why did Jesus choose to speak in parables? Why not just be clear? Was he trying to be obtuse? Like if you're trying to get a point across to people, you want, you want to make it super clear, don't you? If something is very important, then when you're communicating, you want to make that communication as to the point as possible. So why did Jesus talk in parables? If this is the most important thing in the whole world, that he is the son of God, and that there's only one way to the Father, and it's through him, then why speak in a way that maybe some may not understand what he was saying. Because right through the New Testament, we find Jesus having to explain privately to his disciples what he actually meant. You've read that before, haven't you? In the the book of Mark, where Jesus has to go and then explain what he was actually saying to his disciples because they hadn't fully understood it. So why is it that he did this? Well, That text is way too small, so I'll read it. He explains why he speaks in parables in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's quite interesting. I'll read to you from Matthew 13, verses 10 to 17. The disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, But to them, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he who will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, They do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never 
perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hearing the word of God and understanding the word of God and obeying the word of God are not things that come naturally to a human being. Did you catch that? Hearing, understanding and believing this word, God's word, is not in the natural ability of man to do. Just like we read in the kids' catechism earlier. You see, Jesus says that we have to be given ears to hear. We have to be given eyes that see and given a heart that understands. And so, when somebody does believe what this book says, it's evidence that a miracle has taken place. Are you catching this? Every born-again Christian is a walking miracle. And because we've forgotten this doctrine that Jesus teaches here, we actually are very blasé about being born again. We don't treat salvation as the miracle that it really is. The fact that any of you are in here today, sat in a, a kind of crumble-down church hall, listening to somebody preach on the Word of God, is evidence of a supernatural miracle that has taken place in your heart, that you are interested in the Word of God, that you want to know what's in here, and that you believe it. That's a miracle. That means you've been given ears to hear. That means you've been given eyes to see and a heart to understand, because the Bible says you weren't born neutral to this Word. You weren't born naturally good. You were twisted. You didn't want to know this Word. You were in rebellion. Paul actually says in Romans 3 that no one seeks after God until the Holy Spirit comes and does a complete work in your heart, gives you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, gives you ears to hear, and gives you eyes to see. Now, of all the parables that Jesus told, this parable is a little bit different from all the others. Because all the other parables, many found difficulty in understanding what Jesus was saying, but that's not the case with this parable. <laughs> With this parable, the Sanhedrin, the religious Jewish leaders, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. It tells us in verse 12. They were getting ready to arrest him. It made them very angry. So let's take a look at the parable and find out why it is that the Sanhedrin got so angry in the first place. We have this picture of a vineyard. A vineyard which is owned by a man who planted it that is then rented out to tenant farmers and then the owner sends servants to go and collect some of the produce. And it's actually a very common practice in the time of Jesus. This is something that happened regularly. And the, the hills in the Judean hill country were covered with vineyards like this. And so what do we have in the story? Well, we have the vineyard having an owner. 
the vineyard had an owner. And this owner didn't just own the land of the vineyard, but it, Jesus says that he'd actually planted the vineyard himself. He'd planted it himself in the first place. He'd selected the land in which to plant the vines. He'd plowed the land. He got rid of all the stones. Anybody ever done any farming work before? Or gardening at least? When you want to lay a flower bed, you know, at least I've, when I've laid flower beds in our garden, because it's covered with like quarry tiles, I think at some point our house must have just been full of quarry tiles. They were all dug up and they were like buried under about two inches of soil in our back garden. So if I want to dig a flower bed, I've got to get through this layer of quarry tiles before I can get to the soil. It takes time. And so the owner of this vineyard has taken the time to dig out all the rocks from the earth and get right down to the soil. He's planted his own choice vines in there. And he has plowed the land. He's cleared it and made way for his vines. The vineyard, sorry, the owner also, he's done more than that. He's done more than that. With his vineyard, he's built a fence around the vineyard, it says. He's dug a pit for a wine press. That was where they took all the grapes and then they would tread them out. You ever thought of that when you're drinking a bottle of wine that's been made in a rustic way, that somebody's bare feet touched those grapes? It makes you think, you know, I want to see a picture of that person's feet before I drink this wine. <laughs> if there are anything like my feet, there's no way I'm touching that bottle. <laughs> but he's dug a pit for, for the wine press. And then he's built a tower. Now, the Hebrew word for tower there means watchtower. So this is something that you were supposed to go up into and look out over the whole of the vineyard. Now, the fence, why was there a fence? Well, the fence was there to separate the vineyard from the land around it. It was to separate the vineyard from the land around it. It was also to protect the fruit from animals coming in and grazing and also maybe villagers and people that were going to come in and take some of those grapes and make some of their own wine. So the fence is there to protect the vineyard. The pit was dug. The pit was dug because the owner wanted the vineyard to be productive. He wanted to make wine. He wanted to make wine. Now that's you know, that's not so much of an issue for us, is it? But in America, the idea of, of Jesus making a parable about alcohol, it doesn't go down so well. But I don't think they were making Welsh's grape juice. I think this was wine that they were making. That's what they made at the time of Jesus. Each vineyard actually made several different vintages of wine. So you'd have like a cheaper vintage for the servants to drink. And then they'd make a really special vintage that it'd take to market and would sell. So he wanted his vineyard to be productive. And then he's made a tower. Why, why build a tower, a watchtower? Well, that was so he or his farmers could go up and look over the whole of the vineyard and just make sure there's no holes in the fences where people can get in um, to see that everything is in its proper order. Now, the owner, after he's done all these things, he goes away. It says he goes away on a long journey. That, that's pretty common in the time of Jesus. There were many vineyards that were owned by uh, people who were away and they would hire in these tenants to look after the vineyard for them. And Jesus says this owner went away 
and he left his vineyard in charge of tenant farmers. Now, the Greek word is georgoi, georgoi. He left them in charge. And actually, that word there, georgoi, that's where we get the English name George from. I've got a nephew, George, and I had a grandfather called George. And actually, it comes from two Greek words. The word ge, which means land in Greek, and ergon, which means worker. So it literally means land worker. So now if you know a George, you can say, hello, land worker. Hello, tenant farmer. Not necessarily a tenant farmer, but hello, farmer. That's, that's what it means. And so he's left these georgoi, these land tenants in charge of the vineyard. Now, their job description is kind of in their title, isn't it? Their job description, what they were supposed to be doing while the owner was away, is in the very title of their job. They were land workers. They were supposed to be taking care of the land in which the vineyard was planted. They were to tend the vine. They were to nourish the vine, to give it water in season. They were to pick the fruit when it came time to pick the fruit. They were to make sure that the fence is maintained, all those sorts of things. That was their job, to take care of the vineyard while the owner's away. They, they weren't given, however, they weren't given the authority to decide whether or not to harvest. They weren't given the authority to say, hang on a minute, let's plant some different vines in here. They weren't given that authority. They weren't given the authority to move the fence or to remove the watchtower because they weren't the owners. They were the land workers. And they were going to be judged on the performance of their role. Now, if Georgoi, if land workers don't actually work the land, then can they really be said to be land workers? Can they be really said to be farmers if they don't actually look after the land that they're given? Should they be trusted with more vineyards if they don't work the vineyard that they're supposed to be working on? Well, the answer is no, isn't it? And just as this is true of Georgoi, of land workers, it's also true of ministers. It's true of the Sanhedrin, and it's true of Christian pastors. We call church leaders what? What do we call church leaders? What do we call them? Pastors, right? Pastors. Pastors. It doesn't mean fusilli, tagliatelli, spaghetti. When you say people these days, what do you do for a job? I'm a pastor. They look at you funny because... What do you mean by that? What's a, where do we get that word from? Well, we don't get it from Italian food. <laughs> Pasta, in the Latin pastore, and in the Greek, poimen. Poimen. Do you know what poimen means? Shepherd, exactly. So pastor literally means shepherd. It means shepherd. So what's a pastor supposed to do? Shepherd. Shepherd, yeah. Shepherd the flock that's been entrusted to you. That's what a pastor is supposed to do. Now, the flock of sheep, does it belong to the shepherd? Is it his property? It's not his property, is it? The sheep belong to who? In a Christian context. Who do the sheep belong to? God. Yeah, the sheep belong to God, not to the pastor. The pastor is like a hired shepherd. His job is to look after the sheep, to feed them what they need, to look after them. But they, the flock doesn't actually 
become his property. The, the, the poimain, the shepherd, he doesn't have authority to do whatever he likes with the sheep. Just in the same way that the tenant farmers didn't have authority to just say, well, you know what, we can think of a better way to make this vineyard. Let's remove the fence. Let's move it to that hill over there. They didn't have that authority. In the same way, a shepherd, a pastor, doesn't have authority to do whatever he likes with the sheep. He doesn't have authority to change God's word as to how these sheep are supposed to be discipled. He's just a shepherd. Just as these tenant farmers, these Georgoi, they were just tenants. Their job was to simply take care of the land, take the harvest ready for the owner to come. The shepherd is meant to just humbly look after the sheep. But what we see in this parable is that these Georgoi, they, these tenant farmers, what happened when the owner sent servants along to collect the grapes? Well, it says that they beat the servants. They beat the servant, the first one that came along. The next one that came along, they killed. What do you think was going on in the minds of those tenant farmers? I don't think they understood their job properly. Because they behaved like the vineyard belonged to them. And that's always the sign of a false shepherd, of a false teacher, of a false pastor. He's never satisfied with just being a pastor. He always wants more authority than is rightfully his to take. And he begins to treat the sheep as if they were his own. He begins to keep back the produce for himself. And gets prickly when held accountable by God's word. And the question is, if we wouldn't trust a tenant farmer who was unfaithful, in his job. We wouldn't trust him with another vineyard. Should we trust a shepherd who refuses to shepherd with more Christians? The answer is no, we shouldn't give him more sheep. We shouldn't sit under the ministry of a false shepherd. I just want to make clear, just because somebody has the title of Georgoi or farm tenant or land worker doesn't always mean that they are doing that job, does it? And just in the same way, just because somebody bears the title of minister or pastor or priest or whatever doesn't always mean that that's what they're doing. And so anyway, when the time comes, the owner of the vineyard sends servants and these tenant farmers beat them and kill them. They don't give them any of the fruit. And this goes on and on and on for some time. J.C. Ryle, who was a, a Church of England minister back in the 18th century, he said this. There is no little truth so realized and believed and little believed as the desperate wickedness of the human heart. And I think this is clear in this parable. They beat the first servant. They kill the next. And this goes on and on and on. But yet the owner continues to send more servants. 
more and more servants. Despite having already suffered loss, he keeps sending more servants to these wicked tenants. And it gets to the point when he's only got one left to send. Finally, the owner sends his own beloved son, Jesus tells us. And what happens? These wicked tenants take the beloved son, they kill him, and they throw him outside of the vineyard. And Jesus then says, what will happen to them? What will the vineyard owner do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So why is it that the Sanhedrin gets so angry at this parable? Well, I believe it's because they knew exactly who Jesus was saying that they were in this story. They were familiar with an Old Testament passage that's very similar to this one. And it's found in Isaiah chapter 5. If you can't see the words, I'll read it out for you. Isaiah 5, 1 to 5. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And I want to say that Hebrew word there that's translated wild means something a bit more vulgar. In reality, it means stinking, rancid grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked to it to yield grapes, why did it yield stinking, rancid grapes? Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. Can you see now why the Sanhedrin were angry? They knew that Jesus was speaking about them. They knew who Jesus was saying that they were. They were the wicked tenant farmers. They'd understood that Jesus was telling this parable against them. They understood that the vineyard itself was God's chosen people, his covenant people, Israel. They understood that the owner of that vineyard was God himself. They understood that the servants that had been sent to them time and time and time again, these were none other than the prophets themselves. And they knew who Jesus was saying he was. He was the beloved son sent to them at last. And many of you, God has given many, many opportunities. Many opportunities, sent many messengers to you to tell you about his love and his grace. Many of you in here have received those messages. I know many of you are Christians, but maybe there are some either watching the stream or here who know that you have turned down many messengers. Well, what this parable tells me is something about the patience, the patience and long-suffering of God. That even though these tenant farmers hadn't just rejected his servants, but had actually killed them, he still sent his son. He still sent Jesus. It's never too late to turn to Christ. It's never too late to receive his messengers. I just love the fact that God did not give up on these people, even though they were twisted 
and wicked and corrupt, he still sent Jesus for them. I want to say today that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. There is no other way. There is no other hope other than through Christ. And there are many that heard that story at the time who were confused. Because it sounds like God failed, doesn't it? God's planted this vineyard. He's gone to all this trouble to separate his people, Israel, from the lands around them. He's built a watchtower. Many think that that watchtower is the word of God and the, the sorry, not the scribes, the priests and the prophets. He's made all these efforts to make sure that his people are protected and continue on serving him. But what happens is vineyard gets overrun by these wicked tenants who don't listen to him. Many hear that story and think, well, God failed then. God failed. These, these people took over his vineyard and they wouldn't even receive his only son. In fact, we know they crucified him outside of the city walls. What Jesus prophesied came true. Many would look at that and say, well, didn't God fail in his attempts to keep a people for himself? Well, I think what we read about in Romans 9, 10, and 11 gives us the key to understanding this. Romans 11, 11 says, because of their transgression, that is these wicked Jewish leaders, because of their sins, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Romans eleven seventeen says, we were grafted in among others and share in this vine, in this root, because of their sins. Je Jesus himself calls the father the Georgoi, the vine dresser in John 15. And God himself, in his sovereignty, though these wicked tenants meant it for evil, he used it for good. God used their sinfulness to graft in you and I. None of you were born as a Jew. I don't know any of you who were born as a Jew in this church right here, but you've been grafted in to that vineyard. I want you to know today that God didn't lose his vineyard, but we're grafted into that same vine. God doesn't have two churches, one for Jews and one for Christians. He has one church. And you and I, because of the sins of those wicked tenant farmers, have been grafted into God's vine today. And now we get to encounter and experience all of his promises, all of his covenant promises and blessings. And he used their sins to accomplish that. Isn't that incredible? That God and his sovereignty would use even those wicked tenants who killed his son. And again, we come back to it. The cross isn't an accident. It was predestined before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world. God foreordained the cross for the salvation of the world. 
And it says in Mark 12, to finish off with, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus was rejected by these clergy, by the chief priests, by the Sanhedrin. And rather than his name being forgotten throughout history, he's become the chief cornerstone. He's become the foundation of this church.